Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my, na my name is Martin Thornton, as in chocolate, but not in chocolate, unfortunately. Um, and uh, I normally go to the nine o'clock because I share the organ playing uh, duties, and whereas Natalie, the principal organist, plays fantastically. I take after the Les Dawson School of Music. Um, <laughs> But anyway, it's good to be with you, and, um, and in particular to uh, look at uh, Romans chapter 5. Uh, Romans is my favorite book in the whole Bible, and so it's good to be able to, to, to preach from it. And, and uh, in our journey up the mountain, uh, you can all now sort of relax because you've done the hard work, you've done the... You've done the, um, the hard climbing bit, and uh, we now have reached the plateau of peace, according to Andrew. And uh, so we take off our metaphorical rucksacks, uh, looking inside, or having secured ourselves to some sort of rock, make sure we don't slide off. Nothing worse than being 15,000 feet up a mountain to see your rucksack heading down at 100 miles an hour. Um, and, um, and then um, we take out our metaphorical lunch boxes, and inside those lunch boxes we'll find two sandwiches. Andrew Ollerton only gives you one. I'm going to give you two, uh, joy and peace. And that's what we're going to be uh, looking at uh, this morning. <clears throat> now, um, the Apostle Paul in this letter to the Romans is making clear the difference between what we might call a morally restrained heart, i.e. somebody who's trying to be good by their own willpower and their own efforts, and a heart that's been supernaturally changed by the Holy Spirit. And the question arises, how do you know if you are just trying to be morally good through your willpower or that your heart has been transformed by the Holy Spirit? Now, in Galatians 5, um, the, uh, Paul tells us of the characteristics of a spirit-changed life. Verse 22, you all know this about the fruits of the Spirit. Those set out those traits that mark out the Spirit-filled life. I'm sure you can recite them to me, but love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and so on. But here in this first 11 verses of Romans 5, he's concentrating on two of those benefits, peace and joy. And he tells us three things, well, he probably tells us more, but he tells us three things about them. Firstly, they are important. Secondly, that they are unique. And thirdly, what they are based on, what's their foundation. So let's just uh, look very briefly at each of those three points. And the first is that uh, peace and joy are important. And in verse 1, uh, we have this fantastic statement by the Apostle, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace. He follows that in verse 2 with another great statement. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So first verse, peace. Second verse, joy. Now, every other religion, apart from Christianity, says, if you do this, if you do that, if you give this, if you perform that, then you will or hope to be accepted by God. So it depends on what you're doing in your life and how much effort you're putting in. Christianity says uniquely you are justified and accepted by God as a free gift of grace through Jesus. And in being accepted by God through Jesus, God brings into our lives benefits. And as I've said, there are two highlighted in this passage. And the first benefit or gift is peace. We are no longer at enmity with God. You'll see that in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? We were enemies of God, but we now have peace with God through uh, the uh, gift which we have been given in Jesus. And the second is joy. Verse 2, we rejoice in hope. Verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. Verse 11, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. So at our center, if we are in Christ, if we have the Holy Spirit within us, we've had this um, supernaturally changed life, then we will have inner peace and inner joy. And both peace and joy come through this grace. And, and, and the tense that, that the apostle uses of the verbs in this passage denote a once and for all event that then continues. It's a standing we have in Christ. We don't have to keep working at it to stand in this peace and joy. It comes with our new identity. We are standing in God's grace. But however, as we shall see, we have to grow into what we already are. The principle is that the Holy Spirit is given, imparted, so as to help us live up to what we have already obtained through Jesus. Now, a lot of people don't believe this. If you look on Amazon or go to a bookshop, you will find a lot of books on positive thinking and happiness and how to get control of your life. Happiness, says society, is getting control of your life so as to keep your circumstances favorable. But if you read the intellectuals, you read the psychologists, they will tell you that this isn't true. And that the main problem is with happiness itself. It's transient. It doesn't last. We can pursue those things that we're going to think we're going to give us happiness. So 
a person, love, career, family, money, success, and we think, if I get this, it's going to make me happy. But then we get let down by that person. Problems with that career. We might get success, but it fails to fill that aching void in our life. So we have to pursue more. The next thing doesn't work. So what's the result? Some people just keep going on. They're driven for the next thing that will bring them happiness. Others might be, never again. I'm never going to pursue those things anymore. They've let me down. I'm going to detach myself so as not to be let down again. Now, here's a bit of culture. Um, Greek philosopher called Epicurus. He got his disciples together one day and said, look, I'm going to tell you four steps for getting rid of anxiety in your life, in your world. You want to hear them? Good, I'm glad you said that. Otherwise, it would have been a very short sermon. Right. First, he says, don't believe in God. He says, second, if you don't believe in God, then you don't have to worry about death. There's nothing follows on from uh, life. Third, he says, don't worry about pain. I like this bit. It says, because he says, pain will either get worse and you'll die, or it will get better, and then you don't need to concern yourself. And finally, don't acquire, attempt to acquire money or fame. You may not get them, but if you do, it's not worth the effort. In other words, he says, detach yourself from everything. Jacob Epstein is a writer who commented on this philosophy, and he says, well, it might work, but life would be so miserable that it wouldn't be worth living. Uh, I would, for example, I would never watch my favourite football team again since inevitably they always let me down. I mean, I do support Grimsby, so you can, um, you can understand that. But um, C.S. Lewis, to be a little bit more serious, um, writing on the same point, says that you would have to seal your heart away so that it becomes impenetrable, hardened, and dehumanized to live in that way. Now, the Apostle Paul has a different view. And he says peace and joy, which you might call happiness, um, come uh, are unique. And there are two reasons for them being unique. And the first is that peace and joy are not based on your circumstances. And second, we have them now, but not yet in full. There is greater still to come. So let's just look at that very quickly. First, peace and joy are not based on your circumstances. Verse 3, we get to that verse which always causes us problems. We rejoice in our sufferings. And whilst current thinking says, get control of your life and you'll be happy, Paul says that the knockbacks and the sufferings and the challenges in your life will actually produce joy. Yeah? There is a website called Happiness 
Facebook.com. I expect you're all on it every day in your social media. And their answer is that they say to be happy, you have to be authentic. And they define that as the following. Although authenticity is something that philosophers have debated for centuries, no single definition of it predominates. That said, it covers all aspects of human endeavor, from everyday work to leadership ideas, to music, to architecture, and literature. So there you have it. Make the effort to ensure that things will go well for you. But my question is, what if they don't? Things happen in our lives. Life interrupted um, is um, a, 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 a John Ortberg book. And, and, and when these things happen, our peace goes, we get an inner anxiety, and joy or happiness goes because you're no longer in control of your circumstances despite your efforts. And the Apostle Paul says, well, that's wrong. Peace and joy are available in adversity. The first thing he says, note, he doesn't say rejoice for your sufferings, but rejoice in your sufferings. We rejoice in God, not in our circumstances. In doing so, it makes us stronger. It produces endurance, character, and hope in which we experience God's love being poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's in verse 5. And amazingly, joy grows when things do not go well, and this is the fundamental difference between trying to please God through your efforts and will and experiencing God's love being poured into our hearts. <clears throat> now, I know that this, to some or perhaps most, might seem an easy or glib response, particularly to those who are suffering serious issues in their lives, a severe illness, relationship breakdown, work issues, social or other isolation. But the Bible's teaching is not glib. It is deep and true in reality. Speak to any Christian going through a hard time, and underneath it all, they will have experienced or sensed this outpouring of God's love, giving them a resilience that they didn't know they had, and a greater hold on God's grace and a closer relationship with the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> One leading commentator describes it as the difference between eating a chocolate bar and having a nourishing meal. So sorry about uh, the chocoholics among you, but your mum, you remember your mum saying to you, don't eat that chocolate bar before your meal, it will spoil your appetite. Career, money, favourable circumstances are the world's chocolate bars they mask your need for the nutrients and minerals that you need to remain healthy. Take those chocolate bars away and you are forced to seek out the things that you need to nourish you spiritually, that deep peace 
and joy, that poise or dignity. In John 1 talks about he gave, he bestowed on those the power to become children of God. And that word power is dignity. The original meaning is dignity. So we are dignified, we are given this standing, we're given this poise of being a son and daughter of God. And the power of the Holy Spirit is brought within us to bring out the positive things that God wants for us and destroying the negative influences or thoughts. Secondly, Christian peace and joy is unique in that we have these benefits now, but not yet in full. There is more to come. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, says verse 2. And that's saying it's not based on our circumstances, our works and our efforts, but on a certainty as to our future. And if our peace and joy depends on our own efforts, our will to please God, you'll never be sure if you will make it to the end. You will have uncertainty in your life. Now we're going to be told in three weeks' time there is now no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. I don't want to steal the thunder from whoever has that passage, but I will. But the phrase Paul uses is not just simply that Christians are not condemned. It is far stronger than that. He is saying that for Christians there is no condemnation at all doesn't exist anymore. It is not that we've moved out of it for a while but that, and that it could return, but that it doesn't exist because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I think a lot of Christians struggle with this truth. Many believe that Christians who confess sin and then live a good life are forgiven and at that moment are not condemned. But they believe that Should they sin, they're back under condemnation until they confess and repent again. But this this view does not square at all with the comprehensiveness and intensity of this statement in Romans 8. There is now no condemnation. When we come into Christ Jesus through the grace of God, condemnation is gone forever. There is nothing but acceptance and welcome. Now, I know some of you might say, well, actually, can't you just then do as you like? Well, Paul deals with that in the second half of chapter 5, which I'm not dealing with. But there is an answer uh, to that um, objection. But here, Paul is telling us that we can say, I have come home at last. In Christ Jesus, this is the land that I have been looking for All my life, we have hope, not hope so, but hope, life-changing certainty, grounding, assurance, and certainty of our position before God. And God, uh, and Paul uses this, uh, this word that God pours his love into our hearts. That word pours and overflowing of his love into our hearts. And sometimes we just get a glimpse, don't we, an experience of it now. 
Jesus uh, spoke Mary's name at the tomb, but it wasn't the audible voice that uh, caught Mary and reached her heart, but it was the glory of God filling her soul through that word. <clears throat> now, sometimes we do say that it's, um, it's not about all pie in the sky when we die, and that is valid because it's seeking to focus our uh, attention on the here and now and to remind us that we have lives to lead today. We can't just sit staring at the sky. But this phrase does carry with it the danger of stripping away from us our assurance and hope of the best things yet to come. Paul says... We have these things in part now, but point us to the time when they will be fulfilled completely. And the point sometimes missed is that this assurance and hope of the best being yet to come is a valuable tool to help us in dealing with the difficulties and challenges and sufferings that uh, we have in our present life. And this knowledge and anticipation that the best is yet to come has given courage and endurance and perseverance down through the years to thousands of people who have been suffering, whether through persecution or through uh, man's humanity, whatever. And it also stops us from robbing ourselves of that peace and joy, that assurance that we are in Christ. So, moving very quickly on, what are the peace and joy founded on? Well, verses 8 and 9 give us a fantastic statement of the gospel. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And, and sometimes we're a bit uncomfortable with this idea of the wrath of God, you know, the fire and, uh, and brimstone idea. And we don't like the thought of it. But let's be clear, this is not about God being bad-tempered or irritable uh, and like a human anger. It is God's perfect judicial opposition to injustice and evil. The human race have broken God's law. We've destroyed and corrupted the earth. We've damaged relationships within it. And we have soiled God's will for us. I was speaking to somebody the other day, actually, and she said that she no longer, she's a, um, a very great animal and nature lover. She says she no longer looks at the programs about nature because. It causes her too much distress to see the damage <coughs> that has been done. And the last thing that we deserve is grace. But this is what we have been given in the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> he took that judicial sentence on what we have done and in exchange has given us peace with God and deep joy. Now, I know we've heard this from <coughs> the pulpit before, but if someone you know said, 
Oh, a bill came for you while you were away, but I, don't worry, I paid it. How might we respond? And that might depend on... Uh, we'd be grateful, of course, but uh, how grateful would probably depend on the size of the debt. If it was simply postage due on a letter, you might say, oh, that's great, thanks a lot. But what if it was the Guernsey Revenue Services finding out where you lived and presented you with a huge tax demand for all those unpaid taxes you haven't paid? That would be a completely different situation. Here, the Lord Jesus Christ has paid a debt for us and for me that we cannot ourselves measure, understand or pay. So I want to finish with a practical point. If we are in Christ, how do we grow into what we already are? It is the work of a lifetime to break down those bad habits, to live up to what we have already obtained. And uh, <clears throat> you may remember the Morgan Freeman character in the Shawshank Redemption. When he was finally released from prison after so many years, he was out working, sweeping in a shop, I think, and uh, he wanted to go to the bathroom, so he put up his hand to the supervisor to ask permission, and he's told that he doesn't have to ask permission every time he wants to go to the bathroom. <coughs> and we are the same. We're, we have inbuilt habits that are difficult to break. The suffering and the challenges are a time of testing for us. Can't minimize that. It reveals who we are. And I read a great phrase on this quite recently. Does the habits of our heart connect to the beliefs of my head? Not necessarily what we say, but how we behave. Impatience, short temper, irritability, whatever, I put my hand up to all those. But the answer is not, well, you've got to be better, you've got to work harder at uh, not being impatient or bad-tempered. But what we do is listen and pay attention to the, find the root, the source of whatever it is, so as to surface our fear and reassure us that we are standing in the grace of God and to remind ourselves that I'm a child of God, and to be like Jacob, I will not let you go unless and until you bless me. And one thing I, I could suggest you do over the next week, if you wish, no, no problem if you don't, but is to read verse, uh, Psalm 46. You should pray it and listen to the impurities that come to the surface and remind ourselves that why we were still weak, just at the right time. Christ died for us. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though its ma the mountains tremble at its swelling. 
There's a great words of encouragement. There is a river whose streams make me glad, the city of God. We can allow the peace and joy that comes from our being in Christ to take over both our head and our hearts and experience that hope that whatever we have now is just but a foretaste of what is to come.